Welcome to Wood Talk. Now, here are three guys who put the fine in fine woodworking. Mark, Shannon, and Matt. I really love the way he says fine there. Fine. Fine. All right, so it's Wood Talk number 385 for May 29th, 2017. It is Memorial Day. And uh, on today's show, we're talking about sprung breadboard ends, which hand tools should you spend money on, and getting started as a college student. We'd also like to thank some folks who helped us out over on Patreon, and I think we have two of them today. We've got Roy Bradstrom and Jim Rumsey. So thank you so much, guys, for helping us out. And if you want to help out too, you can just go to patreon.com slash woodtalk. And we've got a bunch of different reward levels trying to talk today. It's a little bit early, not recording at our usual time, so forgive me if I... uh if I jumble up my words. Uh, don't but anyway, forgive them. Give them a hard time. No, no, don't. don't. Uh, Patreon.com slash talk. You'll see all the different reward level levels. See, I'm doing it again. <laughs> Shut up, Matt. <laughs> you jinxed <laughs> me now. You're welcome. I'm talking like uh, my daughter, Eva. Can't put out an actual, an actual word yet. So, you do look alike. Yeah, we do. <laughs> That's awesome, isn't it? I mean, for me, not for her. I but. feel so bad for Nicole. <laughs> None of your kids have her in them at all. Actually, Mateo's really starting to look a lot more like her. Um, I think when they're younger, they look like the dad, so the dad sticks around because he's like, yeah, I guess they're actually mine. I should stick around here. Uh, that's my Generally, favorite. because the younger they are, kind of the goofier looking they are because they're right. still like filling out. Yeah. They just it's only like natural the, the that dude. they would look like me. We're naturally goofy. Like <laughs> just waiting for her to grow that beard and uh, that we'll be all set. Um, so anyway, go to Patreon, help us out, get some stuff in return, and even get extra content like the email extra that we do every week, which is a lot of fun. And uh, I think we can just jump right into the whole what's on the bench thing. And for me, I'm working on that wiping varnish shootout. Uh, which was long overdue. I put my test boards in the office to kind of cure up for a couple of weeks and a couple of weeks turned into a couple of months and just haven't been able to get to them. So as far as them being up to like full strength and fully cured, I think I'm there. So that, that, sure. that's actually one variable that's not going to be a problem. Uh, and I spent all weekend doing just the goofiest things with this stuff, dropping car keys on it, dragging a brick across it. Um, I try, here's the interesting thing. These tests, like to kind of spoil the ending, were not nearly as exciting as I expected them to be. Because what? I'm yeah, shocked. I know you would think it would be amazing and riveting. Such a spoiler! But, <laughs> spoiler alert! It wasn't that exciting because you know what? All of these finishes work really well. <laughs> so like a lot of this, a lot of the stuff. Like okay, so one of the oh. first tests I did was putting a, a, a wet washcloth on on top of the wood and putting a iron like a clothing iron set on medium just to simulate like the hot pizza box kind of thing. And I left mm, it there for like 15 pizza. minutes at see this, this is the problem with it. You can't commit. Just go buy a pizza already. Put <laughs> yeah. it on there. Right? You're right. Come I on. should, I should buy like six pizzas and so I could run them all at the same time at the same heat level. Um, yeah, but then you have to buy like, like the drier pizza and then like the really, really greasy style pizza, a juicy wet just, pizza, you know, because that's a whole new variable. It really you know, is greasy wet. And then I got to yeah. compare the cardboard thicknesses from one pizza box to oh, the next pizza yeah. box. I mean, it's it's really yeah. going to get out of control. Yeah. Is it corrugated? Is it not? Exactly. Yeah, There's true. a lot to worry about. But anyways, so I figured this was like, it's direct wet contact. There's no cardboard involved and this should be a good test. And I'll tell you, all four of the ones, the finishes I tested, not one of them showed any indication of being affected by this direct hot moisture content, uh, just like like contact is what I meant to say. Uh, nothing happened. 
So I had to keep like upping the ante with these things to try to get some kind of damage to take place. <laughs> I'm like, all right, now here's a flamethrower. You know, <laughs> we'll see how this one does. So uh, I'm trying to make it an interesting video. There are some results to look at. There were some some interesting things happening, but I was actually kind of disappointed at how well all four of these finishes performed in the test. So too well. Yeah, I was just expecting to have some kind of like massive failure where we could be like, oh, that finish sucks. But I mean, they're all pretty damn good. I mean, hasn't that happened to at least both of you guys at least once where you like you planned like a video and then you get into it and you're like, damn it, it's <laughs> yeah. working. This is uh, this is not as exciting. It's not failing. Like I did I did something showing the differences between the different types of bits and how they they all say three eighths of an inch, but they're actually not three eighths of an inch. And I pull out the micrometer. I'm like, son of a, I mean, they're like, they're like within 128th of one another. I was yeah. like, this is stupid. Well, like, there goes that trash the whole video and moved on. It's yeah. like, all right. Yeah, there is definitely, thankfully, um, some other value to this besides that, because even if they all perform well, there's color characteristics that happen. There's uh, what it does to the grain, how deep it absorbs, how long you have to work with it and how expensive the finish is. So that's kind of, I'm not actually picking a winner in this. I'm just showing people these different attributes because I've used all these finishes. They're fine. They all work great, but each one of them, you know, kind of has its own attributes and then trying to present this information so people can actually make a choice for themselves. Uh, so that's that's kind of the goal, and I think we'll be able to hit that. It's just I really expected there to be more, <laughs> just more <laughs> carnage uh, in this whole testing procedure. So, wow. But that's about all that's going on for me. What about you, Matt? Well, we just got back from my parents' place, and one of the things I find really interesting about traveling, at least out of this area, my parents live 400 miles away, uh, southeast of us, mm-hmm. and like if you drive through Kenosha, where they are. You see a dead staying tree, it's almost guaranteed to be an ash tree because they have the emerald ash borer down there. You drive around up here, you see a dead staying tree. could be anything because it doesn't have, just hasn't gotten here yet. Huh. So I thought that was like, it just, it's crazy to me, like just driving around, like especially back then when I used to live there when I was a uh, teenager, I didn't know anything about trees or wood or anything. So I didn't really know like how many ash trees there were there. Mm-hmm. There's dead staying trees everywhere. Oh, I think people are like, Oh crap! I got this tree in my front yard. I gotta pay however many thousands of dollars to have it removed. Let me just wait. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of trees just standing there waiting to be to be removed. I know the city's already gone through and removed a bunch, like all of them, from their parks. So it's been really interesting. So it's kind of like I don't know how long it's going to be before that happens here, mm-hmm. but it's like there's going to be a lot of like free garbage trees around here soon. Yeah. The latest predictions, I think, are between five and ten years that the ash tree will go the way of the American chestnut. So really quick. That is so sad. Really quick. Like, I would be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised within a year if you started to see it. You know, if it's 400 miles, um, a year, maybe two, before you start to see dead ash trees in your neck of the woods. Yeah, it's really sad. It's very, very. I wanted to look up. I haven't done yet is like what the, I don't know, like what the, I don't know, the incubation period is probably not the right word, but like. Once a tree gets its first emerald ash borer, how long until it actually dies? How many seasons does it take to kill it? It's mm, a good question. <clears throat> it's it's faster than like power post beetles, but it's not as fast as like thousand canker, mm-hmm. just because there's a fungus in the canker as well as the bug. But it's I think it it's just really um, what's the word I'm looking for? Malignant. <laughs> 
<laughs> like really aggressive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it basically just like shuts off all of the nutrients to the tree and it, it just shuts down the tree. So I well, would imagine. I guess it would depend how many boars it has at that yeah. point too. Yeah. The more boars, the more blockages of nutrients and faster it dies, I guess. But yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of, it's really interesting because I got like two ash trees in my yard. They're healthy. They're big and they're going to be dead someday. Which is weird. I haven't really done well, much reading or research, but like, now. what okay. is there no defense whatsoever against this? There's I mean, treatments on the city trees here. Like, they've been treating them with, I guess, some kind of chemical or pesticide or something. So you'll see, like, driving around, you'll see the ones that they treated with a, uh, like a green ribbon around them mm-hmm. that says it's been treated. I don't know how effective it is, but they're doing something about it. I hope it's somewhat <laughs> it effective. It doesn't do a damn thing. But... I don't know. It just makes the tree <laughs> look pretty because some... it's got a new ribbon. Yeah. Maybe some group that lobbied to have them have that done, but I don't know anything sure about it. It's not it like a support our troops there. ribbon, Matt. It's not. <laughs> it is not. It's not that it's kind marking, of ribbon. Marking the course for the local 10K run. <laughs> it's more like tape that says like kill, like stop EAB or something on it. I'm pretty sure that's not military related. This tree is. Yeah. <laughs> it says don't eat this tree. Is, is what the don't eat this. It's full of bugs. <laughs> not edible. I, I think what it comes down to is it's just so rampant and like, what do you do? Like fumigate the entire state, you know, put up a, put up a plastic house and, you know, go all Stephen King with a dome over top of it and, and just fumigate it. I just don't think, I don't think they can keep ahead of it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. It all comes down to cost. You know, how, how much money do you want to spend trying to save the ash tree when it could just become reinfected? And yeah, it, it's sad. I don't think there's much they can do to, to, to fight it. Well, in the big picture, I mean, I, I, I got to imagine someone's doing the, the thought process on this. Like what happens when this tree is eradicated, the species is eradicated? Like, is it really a, a ecological problem or is it something that other trees can can take up its place and do similar right. things? Or, you know, is it worth the effort, the time introduction of, you know, nasty pesticides and chemicals just to save this one type of tree? I mean, I know that they're saving <clears throat> just like they're replanting the, the American chestnut and trying to bring it back. They're saving certainly seedlings and, and stuff so that they can replant it maybe 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it will ever truly go extinct. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's so hard to say though. There was a video I saw recently about they reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone. I think it was. And they talked about like all the things that changed over the last 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And it was ridiculous how far reaching the introduction of one species was like the water levels rose. Like they, they worked down literally downstream enough to the point where enough of the vegetation was eaten away or, or allowed to grow back because of the small like rodents that were being eaten by the wolves mm-hmm. that the stream levels rose and the banks strengthened <laughs> and things like that. It was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Oh, yeah. it was just the introduction of like, you know, a couple of horny wolves and that was it. Whoa. You know? Easy. That was also oh, the, hey, uh, that was, you one don't want to, you don't want to put a couple of old wolves that aren't interested. No, that was you one of the alternative names species. for this show, actually. <laughs> a couple <laughs> of horny wolves. wolves. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, then we decided on wood talk. So yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, that's interesting. I learned something today. Uh, yeah, we learned that when Matt was a teenager, he didn't know anything about wood. Yep. He didn't, didn't even know where wood came nothing. from. Nope. He just thought they were brown sticks in the forest. <laughs> didn't know that actually that that was where lumber came from uh shannon all right anyway so i'm uh i'm still working on uh, my wall cabinets i actually started a second one 
uh, yes, yesterday. I don't know. It's a long weekend. It all runs together. So I've got the um, the schedule cabinet framed up and ready to do the knife hinges. Uh, gotten the doors and everything sized for it. It's going to be really cool looking. The one thing that I just realized I forgot to do, because I think I told you guys last week, I was doing these cabinets as a knife hinge demonstration for the hand tool school. Mm-hmm. So I was so focused on just creating the carcass so that I could put a door into it that there's no internal structure. So it's just this <laughs> like 17 inch tall, 20 inch wide carcass that is now joined together. So yeah, I've got to go back in and like put some dados and things so I can have some shells. I'm going to go kind of asymmetrical crin off on one of them and just kind of have a little like cantilevered shelf that doesn't extend to the bottom, just kind of hangs out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still have this wide open vertical space next to it that I need to figure out what I want to do with that. The problem is, is there's no, there was no set function for this. It was purely designed as a demonstration. So I don't know, like I don't have a place to hang it in the house. I need to probably <laughs> figure that out first so that I know what might go in there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was just one of those silly things. I was so focused on getting ready to be able to do the knife hinges that I realized that there's absolutely nothing functional about this essentially wall hanging frame now (laughs) so yeah i've got to go back in and that that should be an interesting task you know cutting joinery after the case is already glued together um and it's not exactly a huge case you know if it were 24 inches wide or whatever you could get in there with a chisel and a mallet or whatever so it should be interesting to figure that out (laughs) or i may just continue to be lazy and just say hey i was doing this to do a knife hinge demo so it's just a sample see leave it under the bench and pull it out whenever you're doing a demo Right, exactly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> a sample made out of fine African Riffson Shedua with uh, beautiful curly maple doors. As yeah. your sample should be, Shannon. Yeah. yeah. That's true. That's true. It's all you, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> all right. So uh, we don't have a lot to share with you in the what's new category, but we will um, – you know, obviously it is Memorial Day, so we want to make sure everyone is having a good one out there. And, you know, it was interesting this morning. My son, he knows it's Memorial Day, and he just wakes up and he he's like running around the house going, Happy Memorial he, All he knows is he's not in school today. So, <laughs> you know, Happy Memorial Day, Happy Memorial He's like like it's Christmas, you know what I mean? Like the way, the, the, the tone of it. And I, I had to kind of sit him down and say, Buddy, do you understand what Memorial Day is? Has anyone explained this to you, what the holiday is actually about? Um, you know, not that I want him to run around and be somber all day, but I had to explain to him it is not quite the kind of holiday that, you know, that Christmas is, you know, <laughs> one of these other holidays that you just run around being, uh, you know, crazy. There's, there's because, more barbecue on Memorial <clears throat> Day. Yeah, there definitely there is more Christmas. barbecue. There will not be any gifts, <laughs> you know, under the Memorial Day tree. It's That's not going to happen. <laughs> the, the Memorial Day festivist poll. Right. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is one of those, uh, difficult holidays, you know, cause obviously the whole point of it is to remember people, uh, who sacrificed their lives to, to give us, you know, to, to give us an opportunity to do a stupid show like this, you know? Right. Um, so you gotta sort of respect that and not be nuts about it. But at the same time, I think it is good, a good thing to have a good time on Memorial day because that's, that's what these people fought for, you know, is for our ability to have these freedoms to do these fun things and celebrate with our families and stuff like that. So anyway, just a little yeah. wood talk Memorial day. Uh, yeah. Thank and, you. And a, and a big, a big, big, huge giant. Thank you to everybody serving now because we know they're, I I've heard from at least four guys that listen in Afghanistan. There's one guy in Iraq that's mm-hmm. listening to us. There's one guy in Korea that listens to us. I hope they're still listening to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, thank, thank you guys for what you do. We uh, sincerely appreciate it. We probably don't say it enough. 
No, and isn't it amazing when we get that feedback and you find oh, out totally. that there's, you know, yeah. someone overseas, you know, military person listening to this show just because it's like a little reminder of home, something that uh, they, they enjoy listening to when they're going through some really crazy stuff over there. So uh, humbling to hear that. So thank you. All right. Happy Memorial Day. Yeah, there you go. Take off your clothes, Shannon. <laughs> Run around the shop. <laughs> go get a beer. <laughs> it's time to party. <laughs> oh, crap. Okay, let's uh, let's get to our kickback. So got a couple of voicemail kickbacks here. Let me uh, cue that one up. So we talked about handworks, and this is a little bit of feedback from someone who attended. Hey, Mark, Matt, Shannon. This is Jeremy over at the JMAW Works. And I was at Handworks, and I was wanting to give a little kickback. Uh, you made comments about everybody looking like they were all packed in there, and I would just uh, tell you that uh, while it may uh, have appeared that way because of the fact that uh, there were, you know, was one big barn, lots of people in there, probably especially when Roy was there giving his presentation, but also the fact that uh, there was multiple venues, so spread out over maybe, say, three or four blocks, and uh, the Greenwood Barn especially, oh, being outside and whatnot, uh, there was quite a bit of space and a lot of milling around and people chatting in between the venues. So there were areas that were more congested, but for the most part, it was very open feeling because of the fact that it was uh, not, uh, you know, not all in one spot. The other thing is, is that, uh, uh, yeah, it is a, technically a marketplace, but I would say the sales pressure is definitely not there. And the fact that there's, uh, it's very, very uh, laid back uh, in a lot of demonstration, a lot of uh, practical discussion and uh, chatting with both the the vendors as well as the uh, other people who were around uh, certainly made a made for a really enjoyable show. Even if you weren't looking for tools specifically, you got a lot of instruction and a lot of exposure to to people that uh, you're fam- very familiar with their work. So, uh, just a little kickback there on uh, why you might be interested in going to Handworks, even if you weren't uh, really looking for tools. Uh, of course, you know it's hard to get away with there without spending some spending <laughs> spending a few things, but also. Uh, uh, Nice to see some of the the new things that are being introduced. Like you said, uh, it's like uh, an E three kind of event or whatnot. Anyway, that's uh, all, all I got for now. Uh, thanks, and I really enjoy the show. Great, thanks for the feedback, Jeremy. That's uh, pretty cool to hear. I did not know there were multiple barns. That's cool, or multiple buildings at least. Very nice. I remember <laughs> someone posted a map at one point, and I was surprised by that too. Where you could see there's actually you know four or five, maybe five or six different locations spread out a little bit. It's awesome. You know, the, the one thing that I have heard about the show, I mean, I've, I've actually gotten a lot of uh, feedback. Um, the Hand Tool School community, there was a bunch of guys there and they've been posting a lot and it, it sounded like it was a really great event. But I'm also hearing from the vendors themselves. Mm-hmm. Apparently, this is the place to be. If you're a Hand Tool vendor and if you guys remember at Wood Talk last year, like Bad Axe wasn't there, Benchcrafted wasn't there. Like they've always been at Woodworking in America and they weren't there because handworks apparently like makes the year. Yeah. Um, I've spoken to, to Scott Meek about this in the past and like he sells more planes at handworks than he does anywhere else. Oh, that's crazy. Um, so, I mean, I think that's awesome. It's that's fantastic good. because, you know, going to WIA in the last couple of years, I see a lot of people milling around, but not a lot of cash exchanging hands yeah. in the marketplace. So uh, it's good to know. Cause obviously I, I want these boutique guys to, you know, make a living. I want sure. them to stay around. I want them to keep making cool stuff because eventually they're going to tempt me into buying their stuff, even though I don't need it. Eventually. <laughs> yeah, they already con- have. What you'll am convince I yourself about? you need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I look at my four Scott Meek planes behind me. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, all right. So we got a couple of text feedback uh, pieces here. Now, you remember last week we talked about 
think it was the weekend show we talked about getting tools uh, too early, too soon. And we specifically honed in on the domino as an example. So we got a couple really good pieces of feedback about that. Uh, first one here is from Danny. He said, I feel like 384 was made for me. I think you guys made a lot of good points and obviously are accurate, but I wanted to weigh in on a beginner buying tools. I started woodworking because I wanted to build cages for cold, cold blooded pets. I went to Home Depot and got rigid tools. Uh, at this point, I would have considered myself anything but a woodworker. Oddly enough, I went over to Woodcraft that was across the street and started probing them for advice. They instantly directed me to this new tool called the Domino. I literally got a Domino before I ever knew what a mortise and tenon was. To me, it was less expensive option than buying three hundred plus dollar cages and th- uh, oh, three hundred plus cages. So he's got a lot of uh, reptiles wow. that he keeps uh, at three hundred dollars each. It was a done deal. They pointed me to YouTube to some nerd named Mark at the Wood Whisperer. <laughs> Instantly, I became obsessed with the hobby. $40,000 later, I'm your guy. Huh. I have more <laughs> money than skill or ability. In my defense, I look at these tools. Uh, I Wait, I look at it like tools don't lose value quickly. You can always resell them, and they last a lifetime if taken care of. Eventually, the skill will catch up with the tooling. Then I will have what I need and more. Thankfully, I'm happy to say that I don't feel like I've wasted money, as in I don't own 20 planes. I have like four, most of them being low-angle stuff that's versatile. The major chunk of my money has gone into Festool, though, again, I only have their jigsaw, track saw, and some sanders and a drill. I do have some tools that I don't care for, my Rikon bandsaw, jointer planer combos, so on and so forth, but I still shop smart. My jointer planer combo, I think I spent about a thousand bucks out the door. Uh, He says, not mad about it at all. In fact, the rigid stuff has all broken and been sold or replaced, but none of my big money tools have. I have thousands of miles on my track saw at this point, and it's still my go-to. But to confirm your podcast, I still, six years or more later, have a hard time tuning up tools, knowing depths and placements. Layout in general is a huge problem, though I can cut a mortise and tenon, I still cannot do it well. I don't have the motivation to practice, and in my defense, most of my shop time is spent on the casework and cages. Love you all. Love the show. You guys are so right. I know you know. <clears throat> I'm, I'm stifling this horrible burp here, and it's the perfect timing. Apparently, we know we know we're good. Something like that. Uh, but again, I felt as though you were talking to me. Sorry for the poor grammar. It's Saturday night. My wife is chewing my bottom for doing this now, but I couldn't wait. Danny, well, thank you for enduring the bottom chewing and uh, interesting uh, perspective there. Thanks, Danny. Absolutely. You know, that, that that brings up another point, though. Like, he went to Woodcraft, and they're like, you've got to have a domino. Here, take it's, this. Of course that. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not his fault. It's the right. guys at Woodcraft and that guy with a nerd shirt no, on. No, I was brought in after the fact. It wasn't even my fault. I was just, once he was sold, I was the instruction manual. You, you were what controlled the buyer's remorse, yes. essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. It was a noble service. Good for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> let's see where is this oh here it is sorry i was looking at the wrong line Mm -hmm. this one is from joshua he says guild member here writing a response to premature tool acquisition discussed in 384 i am definitely guilty of buying tools i do not need i have explored this wonderful hobby for a little more than two years but certainly consider myself a noob i don't know how to spell troll ease troll spell troll trollist trollies Okay. As a second shifter in the public safety profession, uh, he's a 911 dispatch supervisor. Very cool. Or not. Depends on why you're calling, I guess. Mm -hmm. I have very, very little free time in the shop. 
I find myself compensating by stopping at estate sales, garage sales, auctions, woodworking stores, hardware stores, big box stores, et cetera, whenever I can. In the process, I've wound up with five hand planes that I've never used, one fixed base router that has never touched wood in the shop, a 12-inch bandsaw that I've used once, a joiner that's only been turned on to prove it works. There has been zero milling, an Inkra iBox jig, two belt sanders, three sets of chisels. The only tools used regularly are my drills, impact drivers, clamps, air compressor, Craig, uh, pocket hole jig, router table, five-inch animal sample table saw, radial arm saw. Each purchase was made in the mindset that I really need these items to be a better woodworker, but I did not have a specific need or project in mind. I keep telling my wife that these purchases are still smart, as I will already have the tools when I actually need them. But in reality, I don't have immediate plans to incorporate them into any projects. I definitely did not need to buy all of these tools just yet. I still need to improve my skills so I can periodically incorporate new tools as I go. Keep up the good work, guys. This is my favorite podcast. And the term Harry Giggler is amazing. <laughs> I agree with that. 100%. That's a good, that's a good one. <laughs> okay, so as a sort of counterpoint, I really like this voicemail we have here from uh, Vince and his personal experience with the Domino. Oh, by the way, this is really long, but I think it's worth it. Matt, Shannon, and Mark, what up? This is Vinny from Atlanta. Want to give y'all, y'all, who am I kidding? I'm from Jersey. Want to give you guys some kickback regarding the uh, the show last week about buying tools too early. Specifically the domino as it relates to not learning the tasks, skills, and whimsy that is cutting a mortise and tenon and building projects with that skill therein. Um, So... Here's some kickback from a guy who bought a domino in his first two months of woodworking and has been doing so for three years and has never cut a mortise and tenon. So let me start by saying I couldn't disagree with you guys more. Uh, Let me tell you why. The first project I built was two months into woodworking and it was soon after I bought a domino. It was Mark's uh, green and green Adirondack chair from the Guild build. Now that's a project where the design involves a lot of mortise and tenon joinery, and in some case, some funky angles. So first of all, all this business about the domino just being point and shoot, I ain't buying it. If your stock isn't square and milled appropriately, it's still gonna look like poop. No different than a mortise and tenon, a dovetail, a pocket screw, any other joinery. So we certainly haven't cheated ourselves out of the uh, skill building required to square up our stock. Now let's talk about the design. Every piece that has an integral tenon has to be remeasured and recalculated because it has to be a shorter piece because you're using floating tenons now, okay? The skills you build just in breaking down a plan to understand that part, pretty big. There's a big design element there. Shannon mentioned, uh, you know, understanding how to do a reveal. That's all part of that. And it's not just cutting those pieces shorter. It's making sure the domino structure is as similar as possible to the tenon so as not to sacrifice any of the strength of the joint making sure your butt doesn't hit the ground when you plop in that chair so if the apron in your project is five inches wide with a three inch tenon and a half inch shoulder on all sides and that tenon sticks out three quarters of an inch you have to make sure your dominoes are as close as possible to that tenon you know you don't just replace the entire tenon with one domino you might need to use five dominoes or you might, you know, they may have to be two dominoes wide by four dominoes uh, long. And there's a certain amount of space you have to leave between each domino. I think it's the thickness of a domino or else you lose strength again. Okay, 
a lot of skill as a brand new woodworker in breaking all of that down. And guess what? If you don't and you just replace every mortise and tenon with one domino, your chair is going to fall apart. So you didn't cheat yourself out of all that much, but the price of your lumber and you're back to the drawing board anyway. So back to the gill build plan. It's not just mortise and tenon joinery. There's half laps. You have to make router templates for a plunge router. Okay. You have to chisel things square. You use all of the elements of making a mortise and tenon outside of making the mortise and tenon. So long story short, too late. Three years in, I've never made a mortise and tenon, but I'm pretty sure if I got in my shop right now, I could probably make a couple and I think I'd get it right on the second try, maybe not the first, but in three years of woodworking, I've gathered all of the skills that are involved in making the mortise and tenon. Um, you know, the domino has limitations like any other tool. So what do you do? You improvise and adapt. We make jigs for our table saw. We make jigs for our router because we understand the limitations and we find ways to make them better. You do the same thing with the domino. And guess what? I ain't cheated myself out of nothing. Well, all right, that's my voice memo. Up next, we got traffic and weather. Here's Super Tramp on 92.5 Wood Talk. <laughs> I actually thought about queuing up some music, but every time I do that, it, uh, Google says uh, we can't monetize the video. <laughs> we get a copyright yeah. thing slapped on us. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, very good points there, um, Vince. I, I still don't totally agree with him, but I think what this comes down to is each person's personal experience. And not everybody who gets that domino is going to approach it the way that Vince has. Uh, to sort of fill in the gaps that the domino might leave. So I think this is very, um, you know, dependent on each individual person and how they approach it. And clearly the way Vince is doing it is is absolutely working for him. So uh, good deal. Well presented too. Yes. Who yeah. Vince? Yep, definitely. I don't know if you wrote that down, but <laughs> that was <laughs> well done. Well, I mean, it was, and it was four minutes long, but it was good. Oh, was definitely. It? Yeah, it was four minutes right there. That's the thing. It didn't feel like wow. it did it. Good for you. Good for you, Vince. Way to that go. Was, you have a feature in something. <clears throat> Making in stuff something. with a domino. <laughs> something. A domino. <laughs> and uh, being a radio host. Yeah, I don't think there's much future in that. <laughs> well, maybe a podcaster. There we go. There you go. Okay. <laughs> All right. This next one is from Dustin. He says, hey, guys, on the Scraper Dilemma, I use a product from stumac.com to draw out and hook the burr. It has a pre-angled burnisher set into a slot that makes it easy to repeat the process. While it doesn't allow for angle adjustments, it's a good place to start. Thanks and keep up the great work. P.S. Shannon, I enjoy the wood industry updates. Keep them coming. Good deal. So I, I think I'll put a link to this in the show notes, but it's, you know, it's a piece of wood with a, a rod at an angle sticking on the end of it, and it's got a slot in the end. Didn't Lee Valley have something like that? I have no idea. Somebody, I, yeah, they had one, but it was you could like <clears throat> dial in the angle and all that fun stuff. Yeah, it's not Typical. the first time I've seen that sort of <clears throat> fixed yeah. angle burnisher like that. Okay. Well, uh, we don't have any voicemail today. The voicemails were kickbacks, uh, but you can send us voicemails in the future, whether it's kickback or a question, using your voice memo app on your phone and send that to woodtalkonline at gmail.com. All right, let's get into our emails here. I got one here from Ferg. He says, hey guys, I've been woodworking for about 12 months and slowly honing my skills in hand tools, machinery, and design. I've watched and listened to countless hours of Wood Talk, uh, the Wood Whisperer, and Renaissance Woodworker. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> Actually, I just wanted to end the question right there. Is that possible? <laughs> Great question. Man, it's too early. I'm fighting phlegm today. <clears throat> okay. 
I am just about to start on an outdoor table with breadboard ends uh, using tenons with through pins. Would it be best to have the breadboard end sprung or have the pin slightly offset to draw the end tight to the top? Uh, thanks for all you guys do. Keep up the great work. So this, I actually wanted to, to talk to you guys about this as well. Um, generally speaking, if I'm doing a breadboard end, I'm just going to offset the pins and each pin is going to draw that breadboard in equally uh, across its length and just kind of keep it nice and tight, theoretically at least. Um, but I have also seen in situations where like extreme conditions, like an outdoor breadboard end, for instance, uh, where, you know, the wood can be quite powerful, <laughs> you know? So even if you do that offset, maybe there's a chance toward the ends, you might get some separation there. So, uh, I like his idea here of doing sort of a, a slightly sprung joint, which is going to put a lot of extra pressure out to, uh, you know, to the ends to hopefully keep them a little bit tighter. So, and I'm still not 100% sure what my answer is for this. Would either of you guys do the belt and suspenders on this and do both a sprung joint with the offset tenons? Or do you think that might be possibly even inducing a little bit too much uh, uh, pressure and tension to that joint? It sounds like a lot of pressure. You um, think it might be too much? I mean, obviously it would have to be over a longer distance. Like I just did breadboards on a, on a blanket chest lid that's only 18 inches wide. Mm-hmm. And I mean, <laughs> that would have to be the tiniest amount of spring in order to get any kind of flex over an 18 inch breadboard. Yeah. Plus the tenons themselves are only three eighths of an inch thick because the top is three quarters. I would be really hesitant to try to, to expect a drawboard tenon to pull up a gap of anything. I mean, I, I suppose you could put a spring in it would just be need to be really minimal. Cause I'm thinking you could probably clamp it. Right. So you can get this, the sprung portion, uh, you know, get it out of the way so that you can drive your pin in and do your offset. Right. But then that puts a lot of pressure on those center pins. Right. All the pressure goes on the pin yeah. itself. Um, but, you know, it's a lot I mean, of if you're throwing depends. glue in there <laughs> because the spring joint, a spring joint is just glue. You know, that's what's, what's holding that in place. So I suppose, I mean, you're putting glue on your center tenon, it's essentially the same thing. Right. If you're clamping it up. Mm -hmm. So are we really asking you to do anything else? In fact, all we're doing is strengthening it by throwing the, the, the the peg in there. there. Right. So is it overkill, Matt, you think? Uh, I think it it depends on how wide that breadboard end is, because if you, if it's like, like a normal one, it's like maybe three or four inches wide, you could clamp the uh, spring out pretty easily. Mm -hmm. But if you start getting up to like eight, 10 inch wide breadboard end, like a big old one, like your farm table. Like the farm table, you're going to have a hard time clamping any kind of spring out of that. Yeah. Did you almost get dirty there, Matt? Oh, yeah. You but could clamp talking. the <laughs> fudge out of it. <laughs> it's Memorial Day, right? Come on. He's already drunk. Come on. Give him a break. <laughs> I've been drinking all morning. You know right? how he is on Memorial Day. Can't control himself. <laughs> I'm on my third 30 by now. There you go. <laughs> all right. So. Uh, bottom line is I think my, my, my instinct is just go for one or the other and prefer, I think just go for the offset pins. It's a classic way to do it should be okay. But if you do uh, any kind of a sprung joint, make it very, very slight. I would not induce a whole lot of extra pressure there. I don't think it's totally necessary. And it sounds like it could very well be problematic for you. What either in the assembly and clamping phase or maybe long term. I, I don't, but I, I'm not saying that with any, you know, strong level of confidence, but it just feels like it would be overkill. Sure. Yeah. What I said, it feels that way. 
<laughs> okay, Matt, put your beer down. Do your question. Oh, I mean my my beer hat. Yeah, beer helmet. <laughs> your beer helmet. Get the tubes out of your mouth. Let's go. Oh man, <laughs> you should wear uh, a beer helmet during one of our shows. That would be great. I got. I have to go buy one. Yeah, like they're probably cheap online. Things? Go, go oh, make one. <clears throat> Come on, it'll be a, what? Come on, it'll be a Patreon expense. We'll get it. We'll get it for you. And get one of those Cremona head stickers right on the front of it. Maybe we should like make that a Patreon level goal. I think that might <laughs> to, be to have Matt wear a beer helmet. That's a, that's a milestone. Matt <laughs> wears a beer helmet from now on. Dude, it's like there's one for ten ninety nine. Ten ninety nine on Amazon. We basically Thanks. turn the show into an internal drinking game, and every time you know I say invariably, Matt has to drink. Yep, exactly. I think it's bad now when I'm sober <laughs> reading this stuff. <laughs> only going to get worse or better depending on I think it would be better what you like of the show I vote better yeah. I say better yeah <laughs> oh all right this one <laughs> I am a college student trying to get into woodworking and I live in a small apartment I already have some basic tools what steps can I take to start making projects do I need to build a small workbench find another space to work etc love the show so I took this question because I was a college student getting into woodworking at the time but I didn't live in an apartment I lived in a house but like most people that have an apartment or live in apartments that do woodworking, normally they have like a spare bedroom that they use for uh, woodworking. If you're a college student, I'm pretty convinced that you have that place fully stocked with people to get your rent down as low as possible. So you probably don't have a spare bedroom to work in. So depending on your apartment, maybe a balcony you can work, you can work on. Otherwise, if you're going to be um, focusing more on working in your own space or working at your own apartment area you're probably going to have to look to working outside or at the kitchen table or the kitchen counter, which I've done. And then what's fine. It works. It's not efficient in any means because you're setting up a workspace and taking it down every time, but you can certainly get things done. I think if that's your case, if you have to get things uh, broken down and, you know, set up and all that stuff, you're going to need, obviously a workbench is going to be very helpful to have unless you're actually using the kitchen table as the workbench. But having something that actually breaks down really easily but still really stout and you can get a lot of stuff done on, that's going to be a good way to go. I don't really know off the top of my head of any, like, I don't know, breakdown, Rubo, lightweight workbench thing. But I'm sure that <laughs> it's out there because there's a lot of people in your same position. Um, you know, the other way to get around this is to find a makerspace. If you're a college student, maybe the college there has a wood shop or something like that where they might... They might um, allow you to go in there and work off hours. Who knows? Um, that's definitely an option. Otherwise, there's makerspaces that are coming up all over the place nowadays that you could check out as well. It gives you access to all those tools. And maybe that's kind of like a hybrid kind of approach where you go to the makerspace to use the bigger tools to do like the milling of your lumber, your stock, and you do some um, like hand tool joinery at home at your kitchen counter, which was the that's where I cut my first dovetails was on the kitchen counter. Uh, chopping pins. Really? Yep. On the kitchen counter. I did not know that. It, you'd be surprised how like, you know, like in a workbench design, you're like, you need like a really uh, rigid uh, workbench. So when you, you do make your chopping uh, cuts or whatever, mm-hmm. the force is transferred directly to the workpiece and it's not absorbed by the workbench or it doesn't flex or whatever. Kitchen counters, very rigid. Yeah. It will not move. It's, it's actually, besides the fact that you get like little wood chips everywhere in your house, it's, it works out pretty well. So I'm guessing you and, didn't have granite at the time. No, no, that was for mica. <laughs> I'm not sure I, I mean, would be pounding on my granite countertops. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 
college student? What college student has granite countertops? I don't know, man. You come from Where money. Where the hell did you go to college? I know your history. <laughs> I forget. I forget how young you are. That's right. Uh, <laughs> you haven't worked up to granite yet. That's fine. That's fine. Go ahead. You'll get there. On the next one. You'll get them on the next one. I don't oh. have granite. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you live in the East Coast. All your houses are old out there. I'm still working up to granite, apparently. Well, you can spend all your money on your tertiary homes. That's the yeah, problem. True. The yeah, main house and then the, the sub house and too much going on. I guess to sum up my answer, where there's a will, there's a way. And and if I can add to that, I built a toolbox a while back that doubles as a workbench. You know, it was just a, a toolbox with a slide off lid and I made the lid out of eight quarter. Okay. And drilled a couple dog holes in it. So that's a the, cool the idea. Dog holes. Um, first of all, the dog holes can work like with a hold fast, but they also are positioned so you can put like a stop down. You know, mm-hmm. just a thin quarter inch board with two dowels in it. So it acts as a as a bench hook of sorts. And the the toolbox. I mean, the toolbox should be in quotes because it's heavy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can put a lot of tools in it, and it does have a shoulder strap, and, and you can put it on your shoulder and carry it, but. Like you're not Roy underhilling through the woods and over the river into grandmother's house. <laughs> you're you're carrying it to the driveway to put it in the car. Yeah, you, you know, need a forklift to move it around. Yeah, it, it's it's awkward to carry around, but it because it's heavy, you can set it down, you know, and and be all Japanese woodworker like on your knees, um, or set it up on a table. Uh, I even put a front vise on the front of it. So that's a cool idea though. Cause it's all self-contained. You can kind of just assume you can move it, put it into a closet or something, or maybe use it as like a base for a coffee table. You know, yeah, and then you can I take, take you can take it to all your tertiary and quadrary homes that's as right. well. And, mm-hmm. and it would work there. <laughs> but yeah. It's, it's, I mean, certainly that my design, I'm partial to it because I designed it. You can see a, you know, one of my videos on my channel about it, but there's, there's lots of things like that where mm. just a simple toolbox giving you a flat surface, that if nothing else, you can run a clamp across it, you mm-hmm. know, and clamp something vertically to saw a dovetail. And nice. when it comes to face work, clamping is highly overrated. I think having a fence to work against, like a bench hook, is at least with hand stuff. If you're using a handheld router, hold that in place, people. <laughs> clamp that down. Yeah, you know, I mean, certainly if you're chopping mortises or whatever, it's it's easier if it's clamped or or hold fasted into place, but. You know, if I'm doing tenon work and like pairing a tenon, I would much rather work against a fence because I'm constantly picking the piece up, you know, and checking it, putting it back down. And if you're unclamping and clamping, it gets really irritating quickly. Mm-hmm. Cool. I like that idea. It just kind of, sorry, Matt, jumped on your question there. This is a communal thing. All right. We're all doing Fair. a show here, Shannon. Yeah. All right. Cool. It's a team effort. All right. Well, you guys can't jump in on this one because... This is from Anthony, and he says, my question is for Shannon. Oh, okay. Uh, We'll stay out of it. But he starts out actually by saying, first of all, I have to say my wife and I look forward to watching the show on Monday. We agree that Matt doesn't giggle too much. Yeah. There you go. go, Oh, boy. There's there's There's, two people for you. There's two thumbs up for more (laughs) giggle, Matt. Might have to bring it back. More Harry Giggler. (laughs) So he says, my question is for Shannon. I've been finding myself using less and less electricity in my shop these days, and I want to add some premium tools to my collection. What tools do you feel the premium money is better spent? Saws, smoothing planes, joiner plane, chisels, or whatever. What would you get? What would you get the most bang for your buck? Smoothing plane. No question in my mind. Um, you can restore all kinds of planes all day long, but the smoothing plane is the one plane that you require the most precision. You require the tightest mouth, the flattest sole, 
um, you know, the less vibration mass, all that stuff, the smoothing plane, you know, buy, buy a premium smoothing plane. And it's a finely honed tool that pretty much out of the box is going to give you stupid whisper thin shavings. It's going to help you defeat tear out because it doesn't have vibration, any of that stuff. You can certainly do this with a vintage plane. Um, I had a guy on YouTube the other day, um, who just said, yeah, you can restore a vintage plane, but even the best restoration still sometimes is not nearly as good as some of the modern ones. And, you know, maybe I, I, I'm not going to voice an opinion on that, but um, <laughs> I've just, I've been blown away by like what my Lee Nielsen number four can do by what my Scott Meek smoothing planes can do. My Veritas smoothing planes They're they, they solve all your tear out problems um, on the opposite end of that spectrum. Things that I would not spend premium money on would be chisels. Which is funny because I have some Lee Nielsen chisels, um, but <laughs> I would not do that. But I did. <laughs> yeah, don't do as I do. Do as I say. Um, but I use my vintage chisels more than anything. Um, and yeah, the steel may not be as hard or durable, so you sharpen more. So you get better at sharpening. I actually find the I don't know if softer is the word for it because it's still steel, but the softer steel of vintage chisels actually feels sweeter in the cut. Um, a lot of people tell you you can get it sharper because it's a little bit softer. I, I don't know. Um, but you can buy, you know, a whole bunch of chisels in a shoe box at a flea market for a couple of bucks and sharpen them up. And they're going to work pretty much as well as a Lee Nielsen chisel. Now it won't have the same bevel ground angles for dovetailing and all that fun stuff, but I don't know that that's really that big of a deal to tell you the truth. Um, the other thing I would say is saws. Back saws specifically, you can buy a lot of different back saws, but there are so many phenomenal makers of back saws and nine times out of 10, the people I know that are having problems with hand cut joinery um, and they're like, oh, I've got to work on my technique here and technique this. And the saw is really the one tool that you're allowed to blame the tool. If the saw is not set properly, if it's not sharpened properly, if the hang angle is a little bit off, if the handle is is kind of a poor fit, it's really hard to cut straight with a, a, a crappy saw. So um, I would put the smoothing plane up there first, and then I would put a back saw. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe at one and a quarter, one and an eighth on the on the list. Um, you know, because you could certainly build a lot of projects for the shop that don't require smoothing, um, in which case you do require a really good back saw. So just buy both and don't worry about it. There you go. Boom. I like that. Boom. All right. I think that's going to do it for the show today. You don't want to miss that email extra coming up. We record that right after we finish up here. And that's for $4 patrons and higher. So if you go to patreon.com slash woodtalk, you can find out all about that and catch up on all the old email extras. A lot of good content there. And today we're going to talk about how we handle those frequently used tools, things you would normally keep in an apron, how we keep those handy if you don't use an apron. Um, and see we've got a couple different ways you can support us i uh, mentioned patreon already but you can also go to twwstore.com and get yourself a wood talk t-shirt or you could look us up in the itunes store and give us a rating that's always nice shannon how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here my pleasure mark if you have <laughs> comments questions or you are a wife who is trying to figure out why your husband is now cutting dovetails on the table send those inquiries to matt not on the table itself. They're not dovetailing the table. They're dovetailing on the table. Backpedal. Backpedal, Matt. Backpedal. 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 <laughs>
<laughs> as long as it's anyway, <laughs> there's a bunch of different ways that you, the concerned spouse, can contact Matt to there tell him go. how wrong he is and oh how much boy. he's ruined your dining oh, table. No. Yep. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> He also send has free, free wood. Your so. voice memo. You can send us a voicemail if you want, but we're not going to tell you what the number is anymore because we love the quality of voice memos. You can send <laughs> those voice memos to woodtalkonline at gmail.com or you can just go to our fancy contact form at woodtalkshow.com slash contact. Leave your comment there or go to the website. Go to this episode and type in how you ruined your dining table. Woodtalkshow.com. <laughs> so you can make another one. Oh, yes. man. There we See? go. There See? you go. Yeah, and, and as you, always, you can catch us on the Twitters, the oh yeah, Facebooks, that. Wood Talk Show, etc., etc. And if you complain enough to Matt, he will send you some free wood. So that's true. Keep that going. Why do you keep talking about that? I, I just want to remind <laughs> they, them. I'm trying. I'm doing you a favor. They believe you. They do. <laughs> they do. It's great, isn't it? Oh, yeah, real great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> the free wood thing <laughs> never gets old.